walking through the last few weeks where we've been looking through the seven significant things Jesus said before he gave his life once and for all on that, on that first Good Friday. And you know, on the cross, the, the cross was a difficult place to be. It's, a, it's literally a miracle that you could say anything on the cross that was of any kind of significance, of any kind of spiritual or any significance, really. And I think sometimes we think of Jesus on the cross and things just kind of happening to him. And, you know, he's being beaten, he's being spat upon, abused, all these things. We think, well, Jesus just kind of took all these things upon him. But the reality is he knew full well what he was doing. And he was in complete control of his mind, his heart, what he said. And he said seven significant things that truly have changed everything. It's pretty amazing. And, and, and just a little OCD confession here. How many of y'all have realized that I have not gone in chronological order of the things that he said? Uh, a couple of you guys, your Bible scholars, uh, you guys are also OCD probably too, right? No, I am too. And so let's just kind of have a moment where we're just okay with that. We've not gone in chronological order. Why not? I don't know why not. We just haven't. So it's, it's freeing to be okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm OCD too. So, but uh, making any kind of statement on the cross, a, a, a theologically weighty one, would have been an amazing thing. That's just exactly what Jesus did while he was being crucified. You know, the act of crucifixion was a very difficult thing. Many of us, we know a lot about it. Maybe you've seen the movies, you've seen the, the, the movie The Passion, you've seen it depicted, and that was a very realistic thing. It was a painful, painful, painful experience that Jesus took on us and took upon himself because he loves us, because he had a plan for us. That's a pretty amazing thing. And, and the, the, the reality is, is that the, the act of, of, of crucifixion was so painful, was so powerful, was so difficult. It was reserved for the vilest, the worst of criminals, or the ones that the Romans wanted to make the biggest issue out of. You were not crucified if you stole some candy bars at the grocery store. You were a bad dude. You were like someone who has like more than 20 cats. That's that kind of bad. But uh, no, I'm just kidding around. Uh, you were a bad dude if you got crucified. This was a big deal. The Romans reserved crucifixion for those that they want to make a point out of their death or really bring excruciating pain. And in fact, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. Excruciating literally means out of the cross. So excruciating is the word described for what Christ did for us on purpose to give, us, to give his life for us. This morning, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles today to Luke chapter 23. And we're going to start today at verse 39. We're going to look at the second statements from the context of what's happening here. This is Jesus' second statement on the cross. And it says this again, in, starting in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged ra- railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God? That's an important thing today. Don't you fear God? 
Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation, and we justly, for we receiving the due reward for our deeds. We're bad dudes. We messed up. We deserve this. But he said, this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And now here's a statement here. Jesus said, he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, and here it is, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray today. Lord, God, open your word today to us. Challenge us through it. Illuminate us through it. God, let us see how to live our lives based upon what your word speaks to us, Lord. Challenge us today. I pray this in your strong and holy name. Amen. You've seen it before many times. You've seen the three crosses, uh, the one in the middle and the two on the side. And Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Now, we don't know much about these guys other than what's written here in Luke and then also what's written in Matthew and Mark. And let's kind of set the stage a little bit here and back up and let's see what Luke says about these two guys, starting in verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, it's interesting that Matthew and Mark, these guys are referred to by the word lestes. That's the, that's the Greek word, the word lestes, the word thieves. Now, what a leste was, was it was a common thief. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that this word or this idea was for what was known as highwaymen. And what was a highwayman? A highwayman uh, was like a, a bandit. It was a criminal that you think of the old Western movies you've seen with the guys in the kerchiefs, the guns ablazing, and they're waiting out uh, by the roadsides, and they are uh, bandits that are robbing stagecoaches as they go as they go by. You've seen those before on, on Westerns, right? John Wayne and stuff. He's always a good guy. Uh, these guys were the bad guys. And that's probably what they were. They're probably bandits or robbers or highwaymen. Now, for them to be crucified, they had to do more than just rob stagecoaches. They probably crossed the wrong person. Maybe they robbed the wrong guy's wife or the wrong guy's mom or whatever it might be. You mess with my mom, you mess with me. And so, you know, that's the kind of the idea. So these guys being crucified, that was a big deal. It was a statement being made to, to, to the world that you don't mess with Rome. And that's these guys. But Luke speaks to them in a very different way. Luke, the word he uses for these two guys is not lestes. He uses the word kakorgos. And I practice that over and over and over again. It's pretty hard. It's almost as if Luke wants us to realize something about these guys. That though they were thieves and they knew that and they would have seen that, Luke wanted us to see ourselves in this context as well. That without Jesus, without what was about to happen, all of us can place ourselves in one of these guys on the cross. All of us have something in common with one of these two evildoers. Luke's saying, hey folks, listen up. Now, if all we had about these guys was just what was written in, in, in this book of Luke, we might assume that, that one criminal was a good guy, one maybe was framed, or he was just a good guy, and the other one was, of course, the bad guy. But 
When you look at what it says in Matthew and Mark, and open your Bibles if you could, or just look up here, to Matthew 27, 44, it gives us this information about these two guys. Very interesting. It says in Matthew 27, 44, and the robbers, so plural, both guys, two dudes, who were crucified with him, also reviled him, also made fun of him, also blasphemed him in the same way. Now, what was the same way? You look at that, that, that passage in Matthew 27 there. You find that that's where people are ripping on Christ. They're blaspheming him. They're making fun of him. They're spitting at him. So this word here tells us that both guys were doing this. The good robber and the bad robber. The good howie man and the bad howie man. Both guys were ripping on Christ in the same way as everybody else was. We know that Jesus was nailed to the cross at about 9 a.m. And along with these two guys. And so initially, inexcusably, unbelievably, in their pain and their agony, in the last moments of their life, they used whatever strength they have to join with the crowd and rip on Jesus too. Both guys. But then all of a sudden, something happens. Sometime between 9 and noon, Something changes, something happens, something takes place at this point. And in Luke 23, 40, the good thief said, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sense of condemnation as he is, and we justly, for we receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. See, what's happening here, what's happening is this man's heart is literally being transformed by the power of God right before their very eyes. His heart is being softened and changed and challenged and transformed. Because why? Because this guy has encountered Jesus. He encountered Christ. And he shows us something here as a result of his encountering Christ He's truly sorry. Now, the word sorry in my house, uh, it means quite a bit. I have two little girls, as you know. And when you have two little kids, and sometimes we have big kids, uh, same goes, goes to be said as well, that you have to use and remind and talk about sorry all the time. Right, parents? We have to teach kids how to be sorry. And so you know how it works. Uh, one of them takes the other one's car or Troy or cracker or whatever is which has now become a national security crisis. And so, uh, you know, it's this huge deal. She stole my cracker. Give it back. And so we had to say, honey, say you're sorry. And what happens then? Of course, the sorry is always just real and true and genuine, isn't it? Right? Uh, no, it's not. It's like, sorry. And, you know, whatever else. And you say, say like you mean it, right? And, and sorry. And it's never, it doesn't mean anything, Right? But you know, it's amazing what happens when they actually do mean it, isn't it? A few weeks back, uh, Michaela's birthday, we had, went out to dinner for her birthday, and my, 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 my great brother bought my girls, each, each of them, four cans of Silly String. Thank you, Jason. Uh, and so uh, they, they got the Silly String, they got her at home, and they wanted to play with it immediately, so I said, you can have one can. That's all you get. So they were so excited. They got out of the van and, and they ran around the front yard. It was about, about 8.30 at night, so it was a lot quiet and whatever, but we're crazy. So uh, they're, they're running around the front yard spraying, spraying daddy with silly string because, of course, I was the main person in this whole journey here. They thought it was so funny to spray daddy with silly string. And Aunt Michaela ran out first. 
which of course is a national crisis, of course, you know, and so she has lost her silly string, and it was so amazing. Emmy, my three-year-old, comes to her and says, says, well, Michaela, you can have some of mine. And she hands her her slave string, which is so cool. And I was like, oh, yeah. It was like, the, it was like the, the, the clouds opened up and rays of sun came down and angels were singing. It was like, they finally get it. It's amazing. And so, uh, so they're playing and running around. And, of course, this was a short-lived thing because it always is. And Emmy wanted her silly string back. And so she began to chase Michaela and began to run after her. And they get into the driveway. And I was like, you know what? You know it's going to come you know it's going to happen, but you can't. It's like slow motion, but you can't stop it because you know it's coming. And as it was happening there, I'm watching as Michaela stops and turns around and clocks Emmy in her mouth. And Emmy, of course, falls. And the crying you heard last Tuesday from Big Lake area was from my house. You know, you probably heard it. It was mega, mega loud. It was like this, this, this terrible thing. And Emmy is just, oh, she's crying. But then it was so cool. It was the best thing ever. Is that, is that Emmy, or Michaela comes back to Emmy. She gets down on the ground. She scoops her sister up. And she dusts off her, her wound. And she says, Emmy, I am so sorry. And she begins to cry with her. She's wiping her wound up. She kisses her cheek. Just, oh, Emmy, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please, I'm sorry, Emmy. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. And it was so beautiful. And I was like, man, this is working. All the sorry stuff's working. But no, I was like, that is sorry. That's sorry. Sorry reveals what's in our hearts, doesn't it? Sorry shows what's deep down in our hearts. You see, this guy is changed and transformed as he encounters Christ because as he encounters Christ, he says and he shows that he fears God. Now we have to, we have to establish something here this morning. Salvation begins with an understanding that someday all of us will stand before the living God and according to Revelation 20, whose eyes are blazing with fire and we will give an account. Church, that is a fearful thing. Revelation 20, 11 says this, And then I saw a great white throne judgment, and on him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And it continues, And I saw the dead, great and small, which of course means everybody, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which we'll get into that some other day, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. See, based on this scripture right here, this tells us something, that, that there will be nobody who can safely say, no one in hell who's going to say, I had no idea. I had no concept. I didn't understand. Why would you do this to me? I'm completely blindsided. No. All of us will be judged by what we have done. It says right here that things will be recorded. Now, there are some things in my life that I don't want recorded, right? Anybody else? Thoughts. There's attitudes. There's ideas. There's things I've said. Things I've done. Things I've thought. Things I haven't thought. There's things that I don't want recorded. But guess what? Scripture here says that a book is being written every day of our lives, which is, does exactly that. No, every person, everything a person says, does, thinks, will be recorded, and that will be what condemns us. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then after that comes the judgment. 
Judgment, folks, is a real, real, honest thing. It says here, it's all written down. Every time you cursed, condemned, slandered, spoke in anger, thought lustful thoughts, acted out of sin, were bitter, were angry, were jealous, were all these things. The Bible says it's recorded and it's written down. It's, it's there. It's, it's seen. And I wonder if this, this guy, I wonder if this thief began to realize and see that something is taking place here. My life is before me. My life is right here. And Jesus can see it. It's all written out. It's laid before me. And he, for the first time in his life, realized something. That he has got a reason to be scared out of his mind. It says death and haze were thrown into Lake of fire as it continues here. And then this second death, the lake of fire. And this is, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he has been thrown into the lake of fire. It's one thing that's true here, again, is judgment is coming. And it's one of the signs a person's, or God's working in a person's heart is that they have, they have, have a sense and an understanding of the coming judgment. And I don't know about you, but when I see that, there's a healthy fearfulness regarding that judgment. Now, I, I know today that this is not a popular thing to talk about. It's not popular to talk about judgment. It's not popular to talk about what, what, what's happening here. And even you'll find in some places, you'll find in some preachers will say, man, you know, this fear thing, all this stuff, it's not really true. It's not really the way it has to be. But the problem is, you have to dance around a ton of Scripture to not think that judgment is coming at some point in the future. You have to dance around a lot of things to say, oh, this, it's not there. You see, we think that, well, Jesus was a good man. He was love. He came and showed us love. He showed us grace. He never really sent someone to hell, right? It's even an idea in the church. I mean, judgment just seems so judgy. (laughs) The problem this morning is this, is we have Scripture to contend with. Scripture is clear that judgment is coming. The reality is that outside of God's forgiveness... If we really knew what was up, the thing that would describe our reaction to God would be fear. When you find in, in, in the Old Testament when people are, 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 are coming to the presence of God and they come and they see, God's, they see God in all his glory, a, a word is used to describe it oftentimes. And it's fearful. Why? Because God is awesome above everything else. He's not just some grandpa in the sky with a long flowing beard and a, a couple, you know, lightning bolts in his hands to throw down when he gets angry. He is a God who is so awesome, who is so incredible, who is so amazing, who is so victorious. It makes us tremble at, at times in fear. That's the kind of God that we serve. He is a good God. We shouldn't be afraid of God, people say. We shouldn't fear God. And that, of course, is, is wrong. Listen to this. Hebrews 10.26 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we go on sinning deliberately after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It's a fearful thing. In other words, if, if you say, well, Jesus, sure, that's great, whatever, I'm good on my own, I'm, I'm fine, that's fantastic, he's a good guy, sure, whatever, you can hang out with him if you like, but I'm, I'll do my own thing. If that becomes their attitude, the Bible here tells us clearly there's nothing that can take away your sin and give you hope. There's nothing. Now, I'll add a truth this morning of this for those who don't agree with me yet. It's, this is the truth that they fear God and you don't have to fear God. Don't fear God and you better be scared to death. <laughs> and I illustrate with this. When I was a kid, 
Uh, I was sometimes a, a naughty kid, and I did things I probably shouldn't have done. And, but the worst part of that is, is that my, in my mind, I conceived a whole lot more terrible things that I really shouldn't have done. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you the details because I don't need to tell you that, but this mind right here can conceive some pretty terrible things. And so uh, that was me in, in high school, and, and especially when I was a kid. And so uh, I had a, a certain fear of someone in my life. I was afraid of my dad, if he found out what I was doing or what I was going to do, that I was, I'd have to be afraid of the cops or I'd have to be afraid of the, you know, the, the, the policeman or the principal or whatever else. I had to be afraid of my dad because I knew that once the cops got through with me, my dad would be just starting out with me, and that was a terrible thing. Okay, I had a healthy fear. See, sometimes fear is healthy. All of us are probably afraid of something in common. We probably are all afraid of touching the stove on our hot stove, right? You're all afraid of that, right? I'm afraid of that. Why? Because it hurts. Because it it will destroy me. Because I know if I put my hand on a hot stove, my hand will burn. I'm scared of it. I don't want to do that. That fear is healthy. There's really two kinds of fear. There's healthy fear. There's not healthy fear. Sometimes fear is good because fear holds us back from foolishness and holds us back from destroying our lives. See, that's what the Bible is talking about here, that fear sometimes is, is good. This guy right here, this man, this, this thief, begins to understand this here in this moment. Uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is in a place where suddenly on the cross, he comes face to face with fear, with a judgment, and he is terrified of it. Why? Because he realizes it's coming. He says things like, I'm sure, he's thinking, wow, if man can do this to me, what would God do to me if I'm in my current state? I'm a bad person. I've done bad things. I'm a thief. I'm a highwayman. I'm not a good person. If that's the case in my life, what's going to be my future in this place? What I find so interesting is that in Luke 23, this thief's not looking for someone just to get him off the cross. The other guy is, isn't he? He says, if you're the Savior, if you're really the Messiah, then, get your, then save yourself and us. No, this guy doesn't say that kind of stuff. And see, people that don't really understand and fear God, they don't get this. They serve, they'll serve God for what God will do for them. God, if you get me out of this jam, I'll serve you. God, if you do this, I'll help you. God, if you do that, I'll, I'll love you forever. That's not true salvation. This guy begins to get a taste and an understanding by the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he realizes how deathly destroyed his life could be without some help in his life. Steve's not looking for someone to get off the cross. He comes to grip with divine judgment and realizes coming down the train, like a, the tracks like a black train of death is coming. And the question this morning is, is how does he know about this? He's just a thief. He's just a common dude. How does he get this? Two ways this morning. First one, he, he sees his sin compared to Jesus' righteousness. He sees his sin compared to Jesus' righteousness. Verse 41 says, And we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. That's the core of the gospel in a moment right there, isn't it? This man has done nothing wrong. We deserve this. He doesn't. We're bad. He's good. I've messed up. So have you, bad thief. But guess what? This guy, nothing wrong. 
He doesn't deserve that. That's the gospel in one moment right here. It shows that he believes this. We deserve the punishment, but he took the punishment for us. You know, I could say this morning that this pulpit is 30 feet tall and 40 feet wide. I could say that. I could say the sky is purple. I could say the grass is orange. I could say whatever I want to say, right? But we need to have some sort of of measuring stick or some sort of understanding to see just how right or how wrong we are. I have here today a tape measure. This tape measure reveals the truth of this pulpit. I can say, pulpit, you are 30 feet tall. We know the reality, the truth is not that because I have a measuring stick that tells me the truth. This guy came to grips with his measuring stick. He saw this man, Jesus, who was placed upon the cross for no good reason, for nothing he did on his own. He was put there. He was placed there. He realized his sin was terrible, that Christ was not, and he began to realize that he needed Jesus as his Savior and King. This morning, that's number two today. He put his faith that Jesus could be his Savior and his King. Many people are willing to follow Christ as long as they'll save them from their sins, but they don't want Jesus as their king. Church, that's a a big difference. People will say, I'll I'll love Jesus, I'll I'll serve him, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll come out, I'll do my thing, and I'll, you know, they might even help in church, they might even, they might even volunteer, they might even be preachers, they might even be, uh, you know, teachers or leaders. They're willing to give Jesus a little of their heart as kind of a way to show a good fortune or good life, but the truth this morning is this, is they're not making their king of their life. It's a big difference. This guy right here began to understand the idea of Christ's kingship in his life. Now let's put this in an equation today. If he's not Lord of everything in our lives, he's Lord of nothing. If he's Lord of nothing, then his saving work can't redeem us. You ever wonder why you feel dead inside when it comes to things of God or Somebody else around you that you know is just, man, why can't they get this? Why can't they understand this? Why doesn't it make sense? The reality of this is this, is that if we don't have this equation at work in our lives where he is king and lord of everything in my life, if we miss that, if we don't understand that, then we're not going to get it. It starts out with him being the king and the lord of everything in our lives. Look at the thief's response. Jesus, in Luke 23, 42, he said, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is a huge statement from this guy. He probably didn't realize what he was saying, but it was a huge statement. See, in a word, he's asking for forgiveness. As I was saying this message, I was looking through this passage. I was like, God, this is a little bit confusing. What does this mean here? What is this talking about here? Why is this guy able to have salvation? He didn't say the sinner's prayer. He didn't, you know, go through the, the seven steps. He didn't do all those things. How could he have been saved? Because, but this right here is a statement about what he believes. He believes that because Jesus was the king and the, the Messiah was talked about, he, nobody has ever gotten out of crucifixion, not one person. He knows this. Crucifixion was a terrible way to die, and it claimed every single one of its, of its, its victims. That is, until this man that stood before him, and he said, when he said, Jesus, remember me 
When you come into your kingdom, he said, Jesus, you are going to get past this. You are the Messiah. You are the Lord. This is a a statement of faith that says, Lord, this is what you are. And please, remember me when you get into your kingdom. Verse 42 is the plea of a broken, repentant sinner asking for God's grace and forgiveness. He believed when he prayed this prayer, what he did, Jesus could back it up. He heard him just like the bad thief. They both heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They they both heard that. This man took it to heart. This man heard that and said, said, Lord, you're forgiving. Lord, your forgiving power is, is there. It's good. Can I get on that too? Can I have a piece of that? Remember me when you get into your kingdom. I want you. I want your kingdom in my life. It's amazing with this, these words convey a tremendous understanding of Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, this is not the end of you. You can save me if you're my king. I, I think of Romans 10, 9 here when it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is the Lord and believe in your heart, he's been raised from the dead, you will be saved. This passage, this, this word that this guy says here is a living statement of Romans 10, 9. The thief believes that Jesus will rise from the dead. He confesses with his mouth, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're a king, and I want to be one of your subjects. That's huge this morning. That's salvation. See, I'm learning more and more in my, in my life, my walk with Christ. I'm learning an important truth about my own personal life. I like to be king. I like to be the king of my life. I like to have the world around me bow to me. My, my, my daughters think I'm king, but that's a different story. But I like to be king. I'm learning something that the more I lay that down at Christ's feet, the more I say, Lord, I want you to be my king, and I want to serve you with my entire life, the more I realize that that's where life is. When he is king and I live my life to humbly without anything in my life, to serve him with everything. What if we as believers, what if we as Christians, what if we as people, followers of Christ, lived our lives saying, God, I don't want to be king. I'm not king. You are my king. You are the king of my life. And Lord, I want my life to follow you and to serve you. And I come under submission to you. That word submission is a hard word, isn't it? I don't always like to submit to him, but the cool thing is, when I submit my life and my will and my heart and who I am, when I submit my, my pride, which is there, when I submit my arrogance, which is, believe me, is there, when I submit my thoughts, the, the, the ideas of my heart, the ideas of my mind that are failing and are not right and are not clear and not clean, when I see all the things in my life that, I'm, that I have potential of doing, which not is always good, when I submit those things under the cross and let him change me and change my life, I find something good. I find hope and I find peace and I find joy. See, this guy right here in this moment, he discovers something for the first time in his life. This thief, this robber, this bandit, this highwayman who probably lived his entire life was a bad person who was reviled, who was probably somebody that no one wanted to be around. Maybe he smelled like, like tuna. I don't know. He probably stunk. He probably wasn't very clean. This guy, for the first time in his life, discovered something that he never thought was possible. See, because Jesus re- reacts to his words here with one word, forgiveness. 
He utters these words, and these words had to sound amazing. As the scripture continues here, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, why would Jesus just, just say that and not say the next part? The reality is this, is this, this guy probably sounded like the most amazing thing he'd ever have. And he might have thought, God, how is it even possible? How is it possible you can save me? I'm, I'm a terrible person. I'm a bad person. Remember his heart, it said, it said, Lord, you are big and you are good and I'm not. You deserve, I deserve this, you don't. And so Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And the moment this man was forgiven for all the things that he did wrong, this man was forgiven for all the sins, for all the garbage, for all the stuff, for all the people he wronged, the people that he thought, all the things that he thought, all the things that he said, all these things, all the words, all the stuff that was written down in this book that someday he'd be judged by. In a moment, the books were closed, and he was forgiven. In a moment. That's the good news of the gospel. He was forgiven. See, heaven is not a place where we'll go to see Jesus. Heaven is a place where we get to go and be with Jesus. What's so cool about this today is, today you'll be with me in paradise. In the perspective of the good thief, this man had a radical change in just a few moments. Think about that. The next time you're, you're, you're reaching out to somebody who you think is just beyond help, they're like, man, this person, this member of my family, this person I know, they're so bad, they're so whatever you want to say about them, they're so terrible, there's just, you know, there's just people we know, aren't they? Just, we think, we, we never say it, we think it. Oh, they're, just, they're beyond help, don't we? Well, guess what? Maybe this one, that's you. Maybe you're saying, I'm, I'm beyond help. I've done some pretty terrible things. Well, guess what? This right here illustrates and shows the fact that nobody is. No person is beyond help. No person is past the place of true, utter forgiveness. And no person is past the place where, they, where God can say, today you'll be with me in paradise. This man was sorry for his sin. He responded to God and soon discovered that Jesus was the good news and found salvation that day. As the band comes up this morning, I want to talk a minute about the perspective of Jesus, because the, the, this, this thief saw it this way, and Jesus saw it another way. Think about this for a moment this morning. Jesus, as he is hanging there, as he is being hung for his sins and for things he did not do, for, as he is being punished for things he never even thought or, or did, he's giving his life freely and openly. Jesus did it, bringing a man to eternal life. Jesus lived in the last moments of his life the way he lived his entire life, bringing people to salvation. He prayed for his enemies. This guy reviled him. This guy made fun of him. This guy ripped on him. This guy blasphemed him. And still, he prayed for him. Still, he welcomed him into his kingdom. Still, he died bringing people into eternal life. And church, that is how you and I are to live as well. I want to close and conclude with two important questions. As Joe plays real quietly this morning, I want to ask you two questions. First, if Jesus' death shows us how to live, and he died bringing people to salvation, with whom are we sharing Christ? Now, I'm not asking if you've, if you've never shared Christ, if you've ever shared Christ. I'm asking you, who are you sharing Christ with now? And for many of us, that might be a lot of people. It may not be anybody. It may not be, 
I don't know, and a lot of things and thoughts go into that thought, don't they? They think, well, you know, I've tried, or I've done this, or I've done that. And that's not what I'm asking you this morning. I'm asking you, with whom are you sharing Christ? With whom are you praying for? With whom are you living it out for? With whom are you saying, God, save this person? Lord, if you can save this terrible thief, this highway man, this awful person, in a few moments, what could you do with whoever? See, if we live our lives, our, our, our Christian lives like that, maybe God might use us an awful lot more. If we say, God, I want to live my life like you did to the very last minute, to the very last drop, Lord Jesus, I pour it all out before you. And God, I want to share Christ with people around me. Who are you sharing Christ with? I'm saying Jesus died to bring people to faith in him. The span of, of hours, someone under the convicting weight of the Holy Spirit went from death to life. Change can happen, church, that quick. See, I, I know in my own personal life, sometimes I think, well, what do I say? I, I've tried to say everything, and it doesn't work. I mean, I've tried to say this, I've tried to say that, and it doesn't work. They don't want to listen to me. They don't want to respond to me. They don't care what I say. I've said that, and so have you, right? All of us have. Well, here's the reality this morning. The reality is this. It's not up to us. It's not our place. It's not our purpose. It's not our place isn't to change a heart. I can't do that. I hate when people say, oh, I saved this guy. No, you didn't. You didn't save that person. You shared your faith and the Holy Spirit saved them. You shared your faith and Christ came and changed a heart and took a hard heart that before had mocked and ridiculed and was angry and all these things and in a moment's time softened it to something else and he realized for the first time, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the kind of person, we, the kind of God we serve in church this morning. That's the question I want to ask you. That's the first question. And the number two question today is a little deeper, a little more penetrating today. The question here is, is do you fear God? See, I've had to come to grips with this in the last few weeks as I've studied for this message. Do I fear God? See, God's not called me to fear him like I'm scared to death of him and I'm running away from him and God, you're going to zap me, me with stuff. It's God, I have a healthy fear that without you, without your influence in my life, without my time with you, without my walking with you, I am but nothing. I am but garbage. I am but a, a, a fallen sinner. But with you, Lord Jesus, I'm not. That's the kind of person that we need to be. Lord, do we fear God? All of us, all of us know the disasters in the world, the earthquakes, tsunamis, all these kind of things. And, you know, a lot of times Christians use this stuff as a way to make people fear. And that's not the point today. That's not the point at all this morning. I, wanna, I don't want to fear us by the stuff around us. I want us to be feared by the sin in our lives. I'm not scared of God because I'm afraid if I don't serve him, I'm going to die in an earthquake or, or whatever. No, no, no. I'm afraid that if I don't serve God, if I don't give my heart to him, what kind of person am I going to be? I know who I am. I know what's inside of me. I know what I'm capable of. And guess what? So do you and so do you. You know it's not good. But by the grace of God, as Paul said, there I go. The question comes is, don't, is, are we ready for what God, are we ready for to meet Jesus someday? 
Jesus talk about the disasters of his day, to don't worry about what, what those things that people are, are going to happen to you. Recognize that someday judgment's coming your way. Are you ready? And it will. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Acts 17 tells us God commands all men everywhere to repent. This morning, church, I want to ask you that question today. I want to ask you the, 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 the most important question you'll ever hear in the entire life. Is are you ready to lay it down and repent? Repent means to turn away from the stuff in your life, the junk in your life, to turn away. Are you ready for that this morning to say, God, I'm not great, I'm not this, I'm not that, but I know that you are. I repent for my sin. That's you today. I want to encourage you to raise your hand to God this morning. I'm ready to do that.